Well, the only word I've got, brothers and sisters, is the word unbelievable. Man, we just worshiped the Lord this morning. These stage players have gotten after it today. They have led us into the presence of the Spirit of God this morning. And we don't have many people in the room this morning. But let me just tell you, the Spirit has fallen in this room today upon the people that are here. And I pray that that's exactly what's happened wherever you may be uh, this morning. I'm just, you know, this would almost be a good time. Just turn the lights out and just go because God has showed up wonderfully this morning. We're so grateful for our praise and worship team here at Hillcrest today. Take your Bible, if you would, this morning. I have prepared a message, so while I'm that close to turning off the lights, I ain't there yet. So we're going to keep them on, and we're going to open up the light of the gospel this morning to the gospel of Luke, chapter number 9, for a few minutes this morning. Luke, chapter number 9 today. As we look for a few minutes at the subject, the high price of spiritual neglect. Spiritual neglect is one of those things that can happen, especially when God's people aren't together to keep one another accountable. You know, spiritual neglect is always possible even when we aren't together, but it's especially possible when we're not. And one thing we don't want to have happen in any disciple's life is for a disciple to neglect their spiritual walk indicating to God that they have got everything under control, which is in and of itself a statement of pride, and then fall hard because they have neglected the most important things. I don't have to tell you, I'm sure, that failure is an inevitable part of life. All of us fail. We're going to fail in our business from time to time. We're going to fail as a student from time to time. We're going to fail in our family from time to time, and we're going to fail as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ from time to time. Failure is endemic to all of us. Toddlers stumble and fall down. Students fall short on tests. Business people underestimate market forces, or they fail to understand their competition, and they take a fall. Parents can get too busy and ignore their children. Husbands, well, husbands, all husbands have to do is just open their mouth and things go south fast. Amen. So we're all imperfect. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all stumble. We all fall. We all fail. But the key to our failures is to learn something from them, to get back up when life knocks you down. And that's especially true when it comes to being a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk for a few minutes about the high price of spiritual neglect, which of course is spiritual setback, discipleship failure. And let there be no question as we read the gospel accounts of our Lord Jesus Christ that failure was a regular occurrence among the very first disciples, the earliest disciples of the Lord Jesus. They often failed in their understanding of Jesus Christ, who he was, and what his mission <clears throat> had been all about. The disciples often failed in the way that they performed their ministry. The disciples often failed in matters of faith. They sometimes failed in matters of character. And in these days where the concepts of normal and routine are pretty much out the window, it's pretty tempting and easy, I think, to become complacent with spiritual things. And when that happens, what I want you to know this morning is that 
it's not inconsequential. There's always a price to pay. And the principal goal of my life, and hopefully of yours as well, is the same principal goal that the Apostle Paul had. It's the same principal goal that we have as a church. My life exists and Hillcrest exists to help people in becoming like Christ. That's what life is all about. So the goal of my life is to become like Jesus Christ more and more with each passing day. Or as to use the language as Paul sometimes used, to live a life worthy of the calling that I have received. And because of that, it's those kinds of discipleship failures that I want to try to avoid in my own life. It's for this reason we come to Luke chapter number 9 this morning, because in Luke 9, we have uh, one of the highlights of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. There's lots of vignettes in Luke chapter 9, but the principal one happens high atop a mountain when Christ is transfigured. And by that, we simply mean that Jesus was glorified this side of heaven. There were three disciples there with him of the 12, Peter, James, and John. They had the privilege of seeing a glorified Lord in advance of the kingdom of of heaven. And what's interesting is what happens in the wake of all of that brilliance, all of that dazzling light, all of that magnificence on the mountain. What happens in the wake of that, frankly, is a good bit of failure. The very thing that you would not anticipate encountering is the very thing we do encounter. It's not a failure on the part of Jesus because aren't you grateful? Our Lord never fails. No, the failure happens in the lives of the disciples. What are some of the major reasons disciples fail in their walk with the Lord? Well, there are lots of stuff we could highlight this morning, but today I want us to look at three areas of neglect, and only three today, that I think we can draw from the text. Three areas of neglect that tend to show up really in all of our lives from time to time. One of the reasons that we have spiritual setbacks is because of lack of faith, quite frankly. Let's look at our text this morning, beginning in Luke 9, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Jesus. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and he convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. I think it's very telling that here at the end of, nearly the end of his earthly life, that Jesus, not in this story, but a little bit later on, will tell a very brash and 
overconfident. Peter, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you know, as Jesus got closer to the cross, Peter's faith would fail. But it fails here in Luke chapter 9 a few months earlier as well. What we have here is a colossal failure of faith on the part of the disciples as a whole. Jesus, as I said a moment ago, had been high up on that mountain, along with Peter, James, and John, and they'd come down from the mountain, a mountaintop experience, literally, where these men were privileged to see something that nobody this side of heaven has ever seen, namely a glorified Jesus, together with Moses and Elijah. I mean, it would have been one thing to have just seen a pre-heavenly vision of the glorified Christ, what Christ will be like in all of his dazzling brilliance in the kingdom of heaven. But they got to see a glorified Christ and a glorified Moses and a glorified Elijah. I mean, this once-in-a-lifetime preliminary vision of the kingdom of heaven. There ever was a mountaintop spiritual experience, my brothers and sisters. It was on that mountaintop that day for sure. And I'm sure that you know, if you've walked with the Lord long enough, that you'll have some mountaintop spiritual experiences in your own life. Probably nothing like that this side of heaven, but you'll have some that are just incredibly life-changing, where God just shows up in an obvious supernatural way, where you know the Lord is present and that God is all over you, God is all over your family, God is all over your business, God is all over your situation in life. But I probably don't have to tell you either that you probably know that those mountaintop experiences don't last forever, do they? This side of heaven, in this broken world, we eventually end up having to come down from the mountain. We want the mountaintop experience to last. Peter wanted this one to last. He had this idea of building shelters, three of them, one for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah right up there on the mountaintop to make the experience a lasting experience. He didn't want it to go away, but it does because life is just this series of transitions, isn't it? We move from mountaintop, but eventually we come back down into the valley, and then maybe we stay in the valley for a while until the Lord uh, empowers us, emboldens us, encourages us, takes us back up to the mountaintop again. And if you're not careful, the problems and challenges that you face when you come off the mountain and enter down into the valley will cause you to forget the power and the glory that you did experience when God had you high up on the mountaintop. I mean, this has been one of those kinds of years in the life of our church. The first part of this year, January, February, the first part of March, we were off to one of our best years that we've ever had as a church, maybe the best and most fruitful year ever. We were anticipating that the year 2020 was indeed going to be the beginning of the roaring 20s at Hillcrest. I still believe, by the way, that that's going to be the case because we've got a lot of time it left in front of us, we believe, to make a difference until Jesus Christ comes again. And the reality is, though, when we started out this year, we were baptizing more people than we ever had before. We were having more gospel conversations with people than we ever had before. You're talking about a mountaintop experience. We were riding one. And then a virus shows up. 
and just slams the brakes on all of that. And we come off of the mountaintop and go down into the valley for a little bit of time, and that's just a picture of life. Jesus and the three disciples come down from this mountain of glory. They enter into what becomes a valley of chaos. And as they do, they're confronted with an unnamed man who had a son that's possessed by an evil spirit. Pretty desperate situation. Luke tells us, as do the other gospel writers that record this event, that an evil spirit would seize the boy and he'd go into convulsions. He would gnash his teeth and foam at the mouth. He'd be unable to hear. He'd be unable to speak. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that the spirit would try to throw the boy into a fire in order to destroy him. And no sooner did Jesus show up walking right in the middle of this mess than the demonic spirit began to torment the boy right in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to the father's credit, he'd earlier taken his son to the disciples of Jesus. He tried to find a healing remedy through those who were connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. But try as they might, the disciples could not exercise the demon out of the boy. And the reason was because they simply lacked the necessary faith to do it. It wasn't because they'd never encountered a demon-possessed person before. They had. It was not because they had never exercised a demonic spirit out of a person before. The Bible tells us that they had. They had done that before. Jesus had delegated to them authority over demons. They'd encountered demons and successfully rebuked and exercised demons. They'd done that before. But they can't do it here. And no sooner did Jesus learn from the Father that the disciples could not do it, that Luke records this cry of exasperation coming from the lips of Jesus. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long shall I bear with you? His frustration is not with the Father. In other words, Jesus with that cry of exasperation is not crying it out in exasperation against the Father. In fact, the Father is the one that's acting out of faith here. It's not gigantic faith, but what faith he does have, he's acting out of it. He initiates the whole thing with the disciples the Father does. And in Matthew and Mark, Jesus looks at the man and asks him one of the great questions of the Bible, do you believe that I am able to do this? And the Father responds with one of the great comebacks, one of the most natural honest comebacks that you find anywhere in the Bible. I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. That's a statement of mustard seed kind of faith. The man has it, but he's having a tug of war in his own spirit. And when Jesus, or when uh, the man answers Jesus with that statement, the Bible says Jesus heals the boy, drives the demon out of him, And in much the same way that Jesus drove the legion of demons out of the man at Gadara earlier in his ministry, where that man was wild, out of control, and after a touch from the Lord, we're told that that man was sitting still, clothed, and in his right mind. In the same way, this boy who was so out of control is now sitting still, given back to his father in a condition of wholeness, healthy in every way. The issue was not with the father. His faith was greater 
than the disciples' faith. And that's where Jesus had an issue. Because Jesus had already given them authority over demons. They'd already exercised power over the demonic. And now by this time, post midpoint in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, they'd already confessed the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least Peter did for them. Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you would think that after this great confession of the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, they'd even have more confidence than they had before when Jesus sent them out. But they did not. And because of spiritual neglect that's not identified here, specifically, they failed. Not because of a lack of effort. They tried. Effort's not the issue. They failed because of a lack of faith. We say that we believe in God, but let me ask you, do you really trust the Lord? Have you put your confidence and trust in the Lord through this whole mysterious experience that we've just been living through over these last six, eight weeks? Do you believe in the promises of God? you believe God can be trusted to remain true to every single promise that he's made, notwithstanding the fact that there's never a single promise of God that he's ever broken? Never a promise of God that he's ever even come close to breaking. Do you trust him in the everyday matters of your spiritual life? Do you trust God to help you live victoriously when it comes to temptation? Do you trust God to bring fruit when you serve him with all your soul and with all your heart? Do you trust God to heal the brokenness that occurs in the relationships of your life from time to time? Do you trust God to give you victory in the spiritual battles that you face simply by living openly for Jesus Christ in a lost and dying world? Jesus prayed for Peter. I'm praying for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And you need to understand, brothers and sisters, that in the same way that our Lord Jesus prayed for Peter, his most significant disciple, in the same way Jesus, the risen Christ, is at the Father's right hand and he's interceding for you. Interceding for what? That your faith may not fail. What encouragement that brings that my Lord cares enough for me to pray for my spiritual encouragement, for my spiritual power as it relates to how I live my life every day. Because as the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's why our Lord prays for our faith, because we need it and we need to live in it in order to please him. And so beware, because if you're in weak faith today, it may be because you've been neglecting some spiritual priorities that you all never get too far away from in life. Second problem area that can lead to a disciple's failure is a lack of focus. Not only a lack of faith, but a lack of focus as well. Let's pick up the flow in verse 43 of Luke 9. But while they were all marveling at everything that He was doing. Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, 
in the Gospels, Jesus from time to time, particularly as he makes a pivot turn about the halfway point in his ministry, which was about three years in length, so at about the 18-month or so point, Jesus makes a pivot and he begins to work his way toward Jerusalem for the final week in his life. And as he does, he begins to get much more earnest, much more serious with his disciples about their understanding of who he was as the God-sent Messiah of Israel and of the whole world and how he had come to accomplish his mission. And so periodically from time to time, the gospel writers in the last half of the ministry of Jesus give us what we sometimes call summary statements. These are statements of Jesus' earthly mission that are designed to help the disciples understand that he had come not to be a conquering king, not to be a political savior, but to be a suffering savior who'd be delivered into the hands of men and beaten and flogged and, and scourged and abused, and then ultimately he would die and then rise again. And so he began to give them an encapsulated form, teaching about what we call the gospel. And as he does here, this is the second in Luke's gospel of three of these uh, summary statements. And Jesus says to them, let these words sink into your ears, which is his way of just saying, would you just stop, quit talking for a minute and listen really closely because what I'm about to tell you is like the most important thing you can know right now. So just hush and listen. Let these words sink into your ears because there's some bad stuff that's getting ready to happen. <clears throat> it will work for good, but it won't be pleasant at the time. And so he's trying to prepare them for hardship and for suffering that's surely to come. And when Jesus says the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, he's talking, of course, about the cross his ministry of suffering and his ministry of dying as a sacrifice to deliver sinful men and women from the very thing that keeps them from fellowship with God eternally, which is, of course, sin. And once again, the disciples don't get it, man. They don't understand. And I think in large part, this is a part of Jesus' ministry they didn't want to understand. They didn't want to hear it. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew bad news was coming, but you just didn't want to hear it? And so you avoid certain people or you avoid certain situations or you avoid certain places because you've bought into the lie that basically says ignorance is bliss or that no news is good news, right? I know a lot of people live their life that way. They, they play a game of avoidance. They don't want to hear bad news. Don't tell me about anything that's bad. Well, all in the world that is is a recipe for failure because you're not going to stop the bad news by not wanting to hear it. And I think that some of that is bound up in the disciples. Much of it was they didn't hear it because they didn't want to hear it. They didn't like the way it sounded. And we live sometimes just like that. We don't want to know what's going on in the front office. We don't want to know the real condition of our finances. We don't want to know what our kids are doing when we're not watching. It's just easier not to know. But ignorance like that is a prelude to failure. The disciples may not have wanted to hear it, but this is another reminder of how the focus is shifting away from miracles in the ministry of Jesus, from accolades to the crowd. Listen, the crowd's going to start to thin out eventually. 
And now the emphasis is starting to shift on why Jesus really came, what the real purpose of his ministry was, namely the cross, the cross. The central message of the gospel is not that Jesus can cast out demons, though he can. The central message of the gospel is not that Jesus can heal the sick, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, though he can do all of those things. The message of the gospel is that Jesus came to die on the cross. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus came to suffer and die as a remedy for the one thing in your life that's systemic to every human being that you cannot do anything about yourself. He came to die to redeem you from sin. And here's the thing, the minute the cross of Jesus ceases to be our central focus, we've moved away from the gospel. Heaven help us that we ever stop talking about the cross. Heaven help us the moment we stop lifting high the cross. Because when that happens, we've ceased to be a gospel church. We have moved away from the heart of the gospel, which is the cross of Christ, and we have failed as the people of God as disciples of Christ. It's altogether too common today. Some of the most popular ministry, Christian ministries, supposedly, in the United States of America, you never hear anything about the cross. Well, we just, we don't want to be negative. We want to just have a positive message. Let me tell you something. If any church, any preacher preaches a message devoid of the cross, they're being nothing but negative with people because they're withholding the instrument for their cure. They're they're withholding the antidote. Can you imagine someone having a vaccine for the coronavirus and then not sharing it with somebody? Well, I'm afraid it'll just be too painful. The shots just hurt too much. Can you imagine? We would throw that person under the jail if we could get a hold of them. That's what we're doing. If we fail to preach the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody wants Christianity to be comfortable. Everybody wants it to be painless. The message ought not rock the boat. Maintain the status quo. We just have to change with the times. Keep in step with the prevailing culture. By all possible means, don't offend anybody. But man, I'm just saying, if the gospel we preach and the gospel we practice is devoid of the cross, it ceases to be good news. It is no gospel at all. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to die. Got to take up a cross, instrument of torture, instrument of death. And follow me. You got to take up the cross daily and follow Jesus. That's a willingness to pay any price, bear any burden, suffer any indignity if that means that's what it takes to magnify Christ as Lord of my life. Not to do that, to remove yourself from the cross, to live as if the cross was tangential to your faith is to remove yourself from the gospel and it demonstrates an incredible lack of focus on what's most important in a disciple's life. And it will lead to spiritual setback and failure in the life of a disciple. So disciples 
experience setbacks and failures. Why? Because we have a lack of faith, because we have a lack of focus on what truly is most important, what's crucial, what's central to our faith. And then finally, this morning, disciples sometimes fail because of a lack of humility. And all of these kind of tie together for sure, particularly when it comes to a lack of focus in life. Lack of focus is typically because we feel like we have everything together. We got everything under control. I'll ring up the Lord when I think I need him. That's spiritual hubris, brothers and sisters. And it will not, uh, it will not come without consequence in the kingdom of Christ. Because to pattern your life after Jesus, to follow after Jesus, to become like Christ necessarily involves humility because that was the very nature of our Lord himself. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, I am gentle and humble in heart. This is the only time that Jesus describes for us what he's like on the inside. And he uses two words, gentleness and humility, to describe the essence of the core of, of his being. And we can understand that because that's the picture of Christ that's painted by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, one of the most important statements about the person and work of Christ you find anywhere in the Bible. And Paul introduces this incredible picture of Christ by making a declarative statement at the very beginning, which is really an imperative statement. Let this mind be in you that was also in him. Have the same attitude in you that Jesus had in himself, namely humility. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be selfishly grasped, but emptied himself. He made himself nothing taking on human flesh, the very nature of a servant coming in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Even further than that, he humbled himself by coming, but he humbled himself by being obedient even to the death of the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. See, the exaltation came to Jesus, but it came through the humility of Jesus. And the same will happen to those of us who follow Jesus. God will one day exalt us. He'll make us to be like him, glorified, resurrection bodies, outfitted for an eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. But that exaltation only comes through condescension. The way up in the kingdom is always down. The way to get ahead in the kingdom is always to take a step back. This is the life of Jesus. He was a Lord who left glory to be born in a manger raised by peasants. He was a king who dined with tax collectors and sinners, touched the unclean, healed the social outcast stooped to watch, wash his disciples' feet. Jesus was a redeemer who died like a common criminal, which the disciples never understood until after the resurrection. 
And if it weren't for the fact that the disciples hadn't figured all of that out yet, what Luke reports happening next would be totally off the charts, completely outrageous. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I mean, that's just crazy. Here they had epically failed. And the next thing they're talking about is which one of them is going to be the greatest. They're a bunch of Keystone cops. And Jesus, knowing and understanding the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For, watch this now, he who is least among you is the one who is great. Now, if you're a careful reader of the Scriptures, particularly the Gospels, you know this is not the only time that the disciples get into a fracas about who's going to be the greatest when the kingdom comes. In fact, they get into it as they're traveling to Jerusalem, on the road to Jerusalem for the last time. They get into it, into that same debate when they're in the upper room on the night that Jesus is arrested, for crying out loud. The night before he goes to the cross, they're in the upper room having the Last Supper, the last Passover Seder together, which becomes the Lord's Supper, and they're having that same argument gathered around at the table with Christ for the last time before he dies. And that's what led Jesus to wash their feet, to demonstrate one final time to them that it's not about great. Greatness in the kingdom comes when you lower yourself to minister to others and to meet the needs of others where others truly come first, as was the case, of course, with Christ. So then as now, man, this hope, we wrestle with this to this day. Preachers wrestle with it as much, if not more, than anybody one of the greatest temptations in, in pastoral ministry, popularity, fame, accolades, applause, cheers, notoriety. Man, these are strong temptations in American culture. We all want people to love us. We all want people to lift us up. We all want people to, you know, put us in the mosh pit and just bounce us up and down to tell us how wonderful we are. But here's the thing, following Jesus means self-denial. Denial, you must deny yourself, not self-promotion. It means bearing a cross, not climbing a ladder. Jesus never called anybody to climb a ladder. He called everybody to bear the cross. And then Jesus, to illustrate that, does something incredibly radical, brings that little child to his side. Bring me, bring me one of those kids. And then he looks at his disciples, arguing amongst themselves as to which of them were going to be the greatest. And he said, here's the thing. You want greatness? You want to be great? You want the Father to apply? Here's the deal. Become like this little kid, this little child. Because whoever receives this child in my name receives me. For he who is least among you, ah, that's the one. That's the one who is truly great. Now, most of the time we get these little images of Jesus with the children and we think, oh, how cute, you know, how cute that is. Jesus just loves little children. And he did. He does. Jesus loves the children, all the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in God's sight. He loves the little children of the world. But this is an important illustration that's not designed for children, 
nor to even show us that Jesus loves children, though he does. This vignette is designed to show us what kind of heart and attitude that grown-up disciples are supposed to have as they follow the Lord. I mean, in Jesus' day, for most Jewish families, those little kids, they were considered a waste of time, particularly for the father of the family. Everything was delegated. I mean, the rabbis taught, you just ignore your children. They're a drain on your time. They're a drain on your creative energies. Let other people deal with the children. But Jesus loved children, and he teaches us an important lesson about loving, listen, loving people who are least in the world. You got to receive people like I'm receiving this child because whenever you receive the least of these, whenever you do an act of kindness to the least of these, to those that society says are to be relegated to the sidelines, to those who are to be relegated to the ash heap of society, whenever you minister the gospel to the least of these, Jesus said, you minister it to me, and it's through that humble service where you lower yourself in order to lift others up that you demonstrate the reality of true greatness because it's at that point you look like your Savior. And this is one of the great paradoxes of kingdom living. The way up in the kingdom is to stoop low. The way to get ahead in the kingdom is to step back. The way to demonstrate true greatness is to live as others are better than yourself. Because that's what it means to look like Jesus. I was driving home uh, several months ago, past a church in our area, had an electronic sign. And I got a love-hate relationship with church signs, particularly these slogans that appear on the church sign. Because most of the time, lost people have no idea what they mean, if they even look at them. Most lost people don't want to look at a church, much less a church sign. And much of the time, some of the stuff we put on there is going to go right over the head of lost people. And I was driving home, and the, there was the, the message on the electronic sign was very simple. You know what it said? just said two words, Jesus stooped. That's all it said. Jesus stooped. Now, I would imagine that nine and 44 one-hundredths of every lost person drove by that sign. If they did look at it and saw the message Jesus, they wouldn't have had a clue what that was talking about. I mean, did Jesus have a plumbing problem? I mean, what, what does that mean, Jesus stooped? But I knew what it meant. I'm glad it was on the sign. Because it was a message for me. It's a statement about the grace of Christ. It's a statement about the humility of Christ. That even though Jesus was King of kings and Lord of lords, reigning and ruling His majesty in heaven, He turned His back on all of that to come for me. Because I was lost and I needed to be found. He turned His back on the riches of heaven to bear a cross and endure the pain of the nails and the spear, to shed his blood so that a dead man like me could live forever with him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jesus stooped. And thank God 
He did. It's the way He wants all of us to live. With that kind of gracious humility that lifts others up is more important than self. That treats others as if they were kings rather than living in such a way that demonstrates we think we're the king of the whole universe. The least among you, Jesus said, that's the one who is great. Get the picture? Three very significant reasons why disciples can stumble and trip and oftentimes fall. A lack of faith in the power of God at work in us and through us, a lack of focus on the cross that causes us to major in the minors much of the time, and a lack of humility, living as though life were all about us. And so, brothers and sisters, let your pastor encourage you. Stay sharp in your spiritual life. Never forget that spiritual neglect always comes at a cost. Pride goeth before destruction, the Bible says, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So stay humble, stay gracious, live and stoop to lift others up, stay in the word, worship the Lord with gladness, and look forward to the time that we can all do it together again, keeping one another sharp as we live in light of the return of Christ.